For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You know what is good for us, and oftentimes that is not to be comfortable. But instead, you plan and plot ahead of time a course for us that honors your name. I pray that you would speak through Tom today. Help our hearts to be open. May we see Jesus, and may we see him alone. We love you, Lord. Good morning. Good to be back. If you're a Christian, God has called you to suffer unjustly. That's the first sentence of a message that John Piper presented to his congregation some years ago from this same passage. If you're a Christian, God has called you to suffer unjustly. How's that for a quick way to clear out a church? That's your vocation. That's your job. God cares a whole lot less about what you do to pay your rent than He does about how He displays His glory and His holiness through you. Now, your job, your vocation is supposed to be part of that. But here's a bigger part. Here's a much, much bigger part. how you handle suffering. Right at the top of God's job description given directly to you when He redeemed you and made you His child is that you are called to suffer for doing good. And to approach that suffering with a radically, radically different attitude and course of action than either the world or your old sin nature would dictate. Our passage this morning continues a theme of excellent submission that Peter introduced in verses 13 to 17. And that theme is a subset of the much bigger and much broader theme that he introduced in verses 11 and 12. And that is that we are called to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers. And God's goal in our excellent behavior is that He would take those who now slander us and He would bring them to the point at which they will glorify Him. So that in the day of Jesus' return, some who now hate us would love Him. 
In verses 13 to 17, Peter instructed all of us to willingly submit for the Lord's sake to every governing authority. Now in verse 18, he begins by addressing those who are servants, especially, specifically, house servants. Slavery took many forms in the Roman Empire. Sinclair Ferguson points out that somewhere between a fourth and a third of all the subjects in the Roman Empire were slaves or bondservants of some kind. A great deal of the day-to-day labor in the Roman Empire was done by slaves. It's very interesting, and John Marr pointed this out to me a long time ago, that if you look at the names of some of the people that are named in the epistles, uh, you get names like Tertius. That means third. That's the slave name. Like the third of my seven slaves. Uh, this was not an uncommon scenario. Ferguson points out that <laughs> while we in today's Western cultures don't labor as slaves owned by men, most of us have, in effect, sold 40, at least 40 hours of every week to someone else. And during those 40 hours, we're answerable to, to that employer. He sets the rules, we don't, he or she. So while you and I don't expect to be beaten by our employers in the course of any given workday, the submission to which Peter calls servants does apply to us. In fact, it applies to all who labor under the authority of others. We're doing many of the same jobs that the slaves in Rome were doing day by day. Peter's command to servants is that they are to submit themselves to their masters with all fear. That's what he says. But he's not talking about fear of those earthly masters. He just made it clear in verse 17 that the only one we are called to fear is God. He said, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We're not even called to fear the king. Certainly not our earthly masters. Peter commands Christian slaves to submit to their earthly masters, not out of fear of those earthly masters, but out of fear of the God who has become the lover of our souls, who has become our Redeemer. The God who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light and declared us to be a chosen race a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, and a holy nation. I skipped that one. He has, he has changed our entire identity and made us his, his treasured possession forever. <laughs> we are willing, loving slaves of one true master. And we submit to our earthly masters as an outworking of our submission to our heavenly master and redeemer. Now that matches up perfectly with what Paul says to slaves in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. In Ephesians 6, listen to this. Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. 
not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. How many times can he say it before we get it? Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. In Colossians 3.22, Paul makes it crystal clear whom we are to fear in this process. He says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing God. Here in 1 Peter 2, right after he commands servants to submit to their masters, out of fear of God, not of men, Peter then reveals the extent of this command, and this is where it gets a little little unsettling. (laughs) He says that this call to submission applies not only when your master is good and gentle, but also when he is unjust. And the word Peter uses here means crooked, even perverted. It's the same word that he, Peter, used on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.40 when he said, be saved from this crooked, this perverse generation. See, he's not referring here merely to masters who were unfair in their dealings with their slaves, like bosses who reward the lazy jerks and never seem to notice the hard workers. He's talking about masters who exploit and abuse their slaves. Peter's point is certainly not to uh, declare slavery a good thing. His point is that your well-being, your well-being is not determined by your situation even if you're a slave. Your well-being is determined by your relationship with the only one who actually controls anyone's well-being. If you're a slave on earth, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you're still God's freed man. And he says if you're free on earth, you're still God's slave, God's marvelously blessed slave. So, you know what Paul says to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7? He says, if you're a slave on earth, don't sweat it. He says, if you can become free by legitimate means, go for it. But if not, don't sweat it. Serve your master on earth diligently and enthusiastically from the heart for the sake of your master in heaven. Serve in a way that adorns the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Now, nobody in this room is a slave of the sort that Peter and Paul were addressing. See, if you don't like your employer <laughs> or your compensation plan or even your co-workers, you can get on Monster.com and find dozens of other potential jobs to go after. Do you know that the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported last year that the average 25-year-old has had 6.3 jobs since he was 16. That's since he was 18. That is, that is six jobs in seven years. We live in a culture that has very little tolerance for unsatisfying work 
or bad managers? How about you? Do you spend the typical work day doing the tasks set before you with all your heart as unto the Lord and not as unto men? Ever mindful that the one you truly serve is the one who saved you? Do you serve your earthly master willingly? Enthusiastically? From the heart? Desiring that your employer and your co-workers and your clients would see Christ in you and in your work? Or do you spend much of your time at work lamenting about how little you're paid, how unfairly you're treated, or just plain being weary of work altogether? Longing for the weekend so you can once again chill and be with people you actually want to be with. Most people have about 120 waking hours in every week. And many of them are wishing away a third of those hours the whole time they're at work. Contentedness in the workplace is far far more about your spiritual condition than it is about the conditions in your workplace. And contentedness is a spiritual matter that matters a whole lot to your real boss. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story he once heard of a young shoeshine boy who had a particular very arrogant customer that often treated him gruffly and coldly. One day, in a, in a blink of humility, the man said to the boy, Son, why do you shine shoes for people like me? To which the boy replied respectfully and with a smile, Sir, I don't shine shoes for people like you. I shine shoes for Jesus. And I want to make Him so shiny that when He sees Him, He sees His, his perfect reflection in them. In verse 18, Peter is talking specifically to slaves. But that, by the way, is the only verse in this passage that actually mentions slaves. Verses 19 to 25 make it clear that the big picture principle that Peter's getting at here goes way beyond the slave-master relationship. That's just one manifestation of the principle. The subject in verse 19 is not slaves. The subject in verse 19 is someone, anyone. He says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, someone bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And the subject in verse 20 is y'all. You, plural. In verses 21 to 25, the verses that constitute the real heart of everything that Peter says about submission and suffering in this whole portion of the epistle, the one who is sharply in in focus isn't slaves or masters or citizens or wives or even Christians. It's Jesus. And Peter's big picture principle is not primarily about submission. It's primarily about suffering. Submission to earthly masters 
is just one manifestation of righteous suffering. Now, the suffering that Peter's addressing here is not fundamentally persecution for, pro- for proclaiming the gospel. Does ver- verse 18 say anything about slaves being treated badly by their masters because they're proclaiming the gospel on the job? No. And in the next passage, the passage addressed to wives with godless husbands in chapter 3, there is no mention of the wife verbally proclaiming the gospel to her husband. In fact, quite the opposite, Peter makes it clear that the surest way for the wife to be used by God to win her husband is without a word. How? As her husband observes her chaste and respectful behavior. This is far less about suffering for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ than it is about suffering for living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put it the way Peter puts it in the very next chapter, chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, this is about suffering for the sake of righteousness and suffering for doing what is right. In short, this is about suffering because you're following Christ. In verses 19 and 20, Peter says that the way that you are called to go about suffering for Christ's sake is with patient, quiet endurance. As one who bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now, the bearing up that Peter's talking about does not mean remaining in the midst of suffering while you moan and complain the whole time. It does not mean remaining in the midst of suffering while you're desperately pleading with God to deliver you from that suffering. It does not mean remaining in the midst of suffering while you're being very careful to see to it that everyone around you knows that you're suffering. It means remaining in the midst of suffering with patient, quiet endurance for Christ's sake. Not complaining, not defending yourself, not fretting, not advertising your plight for everyone around you to notice. Patient, quiet endurance. By this point, some of you may be thinking, well, (laughs) this is certainly a dismal portrayal of the Christian life. Why don't we all just poke needles under our fingernails? Well, if that's how all of this strikes you, please pay close attention at this point because this is where it gets really good. This is where the lights come on. The ESV does the best job of translating a critically important phrase that shows up at the beginning of verse 19 and again at the end of verse 20. That phrase is very simple. This is grace. Here's how the ESV renders those two verses. And I want you to listen carefully to the first few words and to the last few words of these two verses as I read them. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, our first inclination when we read those words, this is a gracious thing, is to think that this is all about us somehow showing gracious stuff to God. It's about us winning God's favor by suffering well. I'll give you a little hint. Most of the time that you see the word favor in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a better translation is the word grace. All the way back to when God says, that He gave His favor to Noah. No, it was His grace. It wasn't God responding to something He saw in the man. God is certainly pleased when we approach suffering the way Peter tells us to in this passage, but I do not believe that that's Peter's point here. The very simplest and least interpretive way to render the phrase is that the phrase, this is a gracious thing, is simply, this is grace. When we bear abusive treatment and sorrowful suffering with patient, quiet, contented endurance, that entire way of handling suffering is a gracious work of God in us. And it is a gracious work of God toward us. Us. It's not a dismal Christianity, beloved. It's grace. This is not first and foremost a gracious thing that God sees in us and finds commendable. It is first and foremost a gracious thing that God produces in us and finds commendable. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing in His sight because it came from Him. (laughs) And it should be a beautiful thing in our sight. Again, this is not a dismal picture of the Christian life. It is a marvelous picture of the Christian life. It is a life of acting instead of reacting. It's a life of power instead of weakness. It's a life of purpose instead of pointlessness. It's a life of spirit-enabled mastery over suffering that turns that suffering into an instrument in the hands of a life-giving God to give life where life didn't exist before. To give life to lost people through us. This is grace. a very different way to look at suffering. In verses 21 to 25, Peter kicks this into high gear. He takes us right to the source. He shows us the pattern and the power for godly suffering. We suffer as Christ suffered. His suffering is our calling. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? He just said, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this is grace from God. You've been called for this this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. 
it's valuable to note how intensively Peter refers in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2 to another passage of Scripture, a much, much older passage, Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. Does that ring any bells? You don't have to be a seminary grad to see any of this. Grab your Bible, and if it's got cross-references, look at the cross-references for verses 21 to 25, and notice how many times Isaiah 53 is mentioned. In mine, Isaiah 53 is mentioned six times for five verses. By the way, Isaiah 53 is only 12 verses long. The passage in Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12 was written nearly 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled every bit of it. It begins, it begins by saying that the one God calls, quote, my servant will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then there's an about face that's almost staggering. Because from that point on, it talks about this Servant of God being terribly, terribly humiliated. Despised and forsaken of men, like one from whom men hide their face. It says that he would be so afflicted that even his own people would consider that he was smitten by God. Then it says... He would suffer and die as a guilt offering in our place. He would be pierced through for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, for our peace with God would fall on Him. By His scourging, we would be healed. And then it says the reason that that was necessary is because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's substitutionary atonement. It doesn't end there. It goes on, it says he would experience all this without uttering a word in his defense. And then it says he would die. He would be buried in the tomb of a rich man even though he was supposed to be buried with criminals. It doesn't stop there. It says, because He offered Himself up as a guilt offering in our place, God would continue His days and He would see His offspring and the good pleasure of Yahweh would prosper in His hand. Now how's that going to happen if He died and was buried? There's only one way. He had to be resurrected. And then finally... It says God will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils of battle with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered among the transgressors. In other words, he will be high and lifted up and greatly greatly exalted just like the first verse of the passage said he would. Now, that's the whole gospel of Jesus Christ's humiliation, substitutionary death, resurrection, and exaltation in the Old Testament 700 years before he came. Why is Peter citing that verse, that passage here? Why is he referring to it at least six times in these five verses? Well, it's not 
to point lost people to Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior because Peter's not writing this letter to lost people. Read what he says right at the beginning of the letter. He's writing it to the saints. His point is to point Christians to a revolutionary reality. And that revolutionary reality is that suffering precedes glory. Not only does suffering precede glory, suffering is prerequisite to glory. In Romans 8.17, Paul says that if you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, you're a fellow heir with Christ, if indeed you suffer with Him in order that you may be glorified with Him. Suffering is prerequisite to glory. You don't get the glory without the suffering. Jesus didn't. What makes you think that you will? The reason the leaders of Jesus' own people, the Jews, rejected Him as Messiah was not because He didn't fulfill what was prophesied about Messiah. It was because they didn't like this part of the plan. They loved the idea of a Messiah who was high and lifted up and greatly exalted. They were a subservient nation under the Roman Empire and they were ready to get their prestige back. And it wasn't just the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders that had this little problem. Jesus' own disciples were counting on the same kind of fulfillment of the kingdom promises that the Pharisees were all the way through their time with Jesus Christ. Even at the very end of this time, of Christ's time with His disciples, they were still arguing among themselves about who was going to be most exalted in His kingdom. (laughs) And they were counting on the fact that He was going to implement, He was going to institute that kingdom in short order while they were still young men with plenty of time to bask in their newfound glory. Life was going to finally be comfortable. But then, Jesus was arrested, unjustly convicted, mocked, spat upon, beaten, scourged, and crucified. And that blew a barn-sized hole in the disciples' happy plans for sharing in their King's glory. A hole that sent them scattering running for cover in utter despair and confusion. His disciples. Yet Christ's suffering and death was exactly, it was exactly what God had prophesied concerning His Messiah 700 years earlier, and it was exactly what Jesus had personally and repeatedly told His disciples must happen. So why was the suffering and death of Jesus such a surprise even to His own disciples? It's simple. They didn't want to believe that their Savior had to suffer and die a humiliating death because if that could happen to Him, it could happen to them. We don't like the idea that conformity with Christ's character and participation in Christ's glory demands... Conformity with and 
participation in Christ's suffering. The holiness that God intends for you as His redeemed child, the holiness that God promises to you as His redeemed child, demands your conformity with Christ's suffering. That's not a minor theme in the Bible, guys. It's everywhere. The only reason it's so elusive to us is because we don't like it. And there are plenty of voices out there telling us that it's perfectly okay that we don't like it, right? Some of them are making a lot of money telling people that it's okay that we don't like it. Voices that tell us we can have holiness and glory right here, right now, without suffering. Joel Osteen's first book, New York Times bestseller for more than two years, sold more than four million copies thus far, is titled, Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now? Beloved, you cannot have the living hope that Peter talks about in this letter and have your best life now. It is not possible. You cannot have both. One is a fake and the other one's real. The living hope that God has made your birthright in Christ sustains and empowers and makes you useful for God's eternally abiding purposes right here, right now. That other, that fake hope misleads and deludes and cripples and renders you useless to God right here, right now. If you're a child of God, I've got news for you. God will not allow you to find fulfillment in the things you can see and get your hands on here and now. Because He loves you too much to let you find fulfillment in a mirage. Most of you here today would readily say, okay, I, I get that. I know that prosperity theology stuff is all nonsense. <laughs> My only hope is in Jesus Christ. Really? What do you pray for? Most. What do we as a body pray for? Most. Is it that God would use the deferral of our best life until later to teach us holiness now? Is it that God would faithfully use the sufferings of this present time to glorify Himself through us in the eyes of people around us? Or is it instead that He would provide a quick end to today's suffering? When do we celebrate God's answers to prayer? When do we testify of His faithfulness right here on Sunday morning in front of His people? We're quick to do that when... One among us nails down the job that we've all been diligently praying she would get when we learn that the cancer or life-threatening heart condition that someone we love has been struggling with has been healed or perhaps was misdiagnosed. Are those things worthy of celebration? You bet. 
You bet. You ever look at Third John? Third John, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. It's worth celebrating. You know how many verses like that you're going to find? Very few. Those deliverances, those temp- temporary deliverances where we do experience health and prosperity and deliverance from very uncomfortable things for a while here, are those the things that God puts into the lives of his beloved children that are most powerfully used by God? Are they the things that are most worthy of celebration? No, they are not. As my brother John Marr put it in our discussion earlier this week, we have a tendency to practice vending machine righteousness. Whether we face up to it or not, what we're really saying to God is, okay, Lord, I've been laying down my life for you. I've been doing my level best to live the way you call me to live. I'm giving till it hurts, talking to people about Jesus, reading my Bible regularly, praying diligently. Heck, I even answered the phone last week when someone from the church called me during a Spurs game. That was before the Warriors shut him down. Surely, Lord, I should be suffer-proofed for a while. You know how wrong that is? That is 100% wrong. Listen to this, beloved. Following Christ does not protect you from suffering any more than being Christ protected Him from suffering. Jesus didn't run from suffering. He didn't make any effort to structure it out of His life. He didn't fight against it. He didn't even defend Himself. He could have called 12 legions of angels at the cross, but He didn't. Instead, He was silent. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. You ever feel like that sometimes? He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Why? Because God had a ridiculously grand purpose for His suffering. Do you know why you're here living in this time and in this place? You are here, beloved, to suffer for Christ that He may be glorified through you and that you may be glorified with Him. If you've come to believe in Jesus Christ as God and Savior, as your Savior, suffering for His sake is not something that might happen to you. (laughs) It's something that will happen to you by God's perfect design. In fact, it's already happening to you if you you belong to Christ. The question is, are you on the same page as God when it comes to suffering for righteousness' sake? Until you are, your life will never make sense to you. Until you embrace the simple reality that God imparts 
holiness to you and He makes, makes you useful for His eternal purposes through suffering, you will squander your life on the pursuit of comfort and the avoidance of pain. But because God is faithful and gracious, He's not going to let you succeed in either of those pursuits. Resistance is futile. God loves you too much to let you find fulfillment in a mirage. Beloved, this is all grace. There are many, many examples I could cite from Scripture to show how God did the same miraculous work in the lives of His people over and over in both Testaments. Read the stories. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah. And of course, God powerfully used suffering in the lives of His faithful apostles like Peter, James, John, and Paul. But the example that Peter presents to us right here is the perfect example. It's the perfect example of this principle fleshed out in real life. The example that we are called to daily, constantly, have firmly in our minds and hearts every day. And that example is Jesus Christ. Now, how did Jesus endure 33 years of living a sinless, holy life among the walking dead that culminated in suffering the greatest injustice in the history of God's creation? He endured it, Peter says, by trusting the one who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 Jesus knew where His Father was going with everything that happened to Him all the way to the cross. He trusted in the absolute certainty that His Father was going to do everything that He had promised and that it would be incomparably good. And what I find absolutely amazing about verses 23-25 to is that Jesus trusted his Father, to judge justly. And what happened to the just judgment that we were supposed to get? God put it on Him. And Jesus knew that He would. That's why He came. Trusting God to judge justly does not mean that He guarantees us some kind of hard limit on suffering. You may suffer for Christ more grievously than anyone you've ever known or heard about except Christ. But beloved, you can bank on God's promise that He will accomplish mighty, eternally good things through your suffering just as He did through Christ's. And the most mighty of all, the most miraculous of all, will be the eternal salvation of lost men, women, and children. And one of the most powerful ways that He does that through you is based on how you handle suffering. As Christ's wounds brought healing to us, verse 24, our wounds will bring, 
healing to others by God's gracious doing. This is so very important, beloved. You and I will never save another person's soul. It's not our job. But the reason that we are still here on this earth is to be God's instrument as He saves many souls through us. We are here as His agents and redeemed image bearers to do what Jesus did, to seek and save the lost. The humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus accomplished perfect victory over sin and death, the curse of sin. Now, God is using us, His not yet perfect image bearers, to spread the impact of that victory far and wide. One soul at a time. And the way He's going about doing that is through your and my participation in the suffering of Christ. How useful are you to God on your most comfortable, conflict-free, trouble-free days? Are the lost people around you likely to stand up and take notice at how marvelously you're handling your second anniversary getaway to Cozumel with your wife while your parents take care of your kids and your dog? Now, God might still give you an opportunity to speak for Christ on a plane or at a hotel, but it's pretty tricky to demonstrate your willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake while your wife is rubbing suntan lotion on your back and you're sipping a pina colada on the beach. I'm not saying there's anything at all wrong with that second anniversary getaway. It sounds great to me. But we need to understand that it is not our times of ease that are most useful to God for plucking people out of the darkness and putting them into His marvelous light. If we're really on board with God's agenda for putting us to good use while we're here, we will not be looking to spend a whole lot of time in comfortable situations. Instead, we'll expect to spend a whole lot of time in very uncomfortable situations and we will approach those situations in advance with the expectation that God's going to use them miraculously in the lives of the people around us. Give me two more minutes and I'm done. When I was a teenager, not yet a believer, I knew one, exactly one guy my age who steadfastly and unashamedly declared that he intended to remain a virgin until he was married. And he was not unclear about his reason for that commitment. It was because he wanted to honor his Savior, Jesus Christ. I learned that fact about him from a conversation I overheard from a couple of girls who were making fun of him at the time. I found it How should I put it? I found it distressingly impressive. Even though I definitely at that point didn't share his particular convictions. Then, one very hot, very dry 4th of July night, that young man's house burned to the ground. A bottle rocket landed on the roof. And the fire department was so busy putting out all the other fires from all the other bottle rockets that by the time they finally got to his house, 
pretty much all that was left was the foundation. I learned later that as he and his family and a bunch of their neighbors were standing in the front yard watching the house go up in smoke, having given up on the garden hoses at that point, his dad said, you know, I'm kind of excited to see what God's going to do with this. I had never heard anything like that in my life. And I can tell you that those two things, that that young man's devotion to sexual purity for Christ's sake and his dad's crazy, beautiful response to the literal heat of adversity right in the midst of it were two things that the Holy Spirit used in my life to bring me to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to do through you. Brothers and sisters, the next time that you're in the midst of a trial that seems terribly unjust or even uncaring on God's part, stop. Pray. Acknowledge before your redeeming God that He always gets it right. And then watch Him do His good and gracious thing through you. Loving Father, this is, a, this is a powerful, revolutionary, crazy calling. Ah, it, it, it turns everything right side up. The world's got it all the wrong way. It turns everything right side up. Father, would you pierce our hearts and cause us to embrace this with all our heart. Lord, that, that we would rejoice. We would rejoice in the fiery ordeal that comes upon us for our testing because you use that fiery furnace both to refine us into conformity with Christ and you use that fiery furnace to show yourself off to other people through us that they may come to life in Jesus Christ. We pray this with all our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name.